You're now being programmed to chill. A show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica with your host, Jimmy Fallon Gong. This is episode 30, Imperial Japan Part 1, Korea and the Dark Ocean Society. Today I'm recording from Gyeongbokgung Palace. Today we're starting a new series. I'm not sure how long it will run, but I plan on doing content on Japanese history before, during, and after World War II, or as they called it, the Greater East Asia War. My intention is to discuss both the broad history, as I perceive there are gaps in Americans' knowledge on Imperial Japanese history, my own perspective here, and also some of the intelligence ties throughout, both Japanese and uh, U.S. intelligence, and others. I'm hoping to tease out the web of corporate corruption and organized crime networks throughout Asia. The purpose for this series is threefold. I mean, first of all, all history is fascinating and the pursuit of knowledge is always worth it on some level, right? Second, Japan can seem inscrutable to Westerners sometimes, sometimes until learning some basic history. And third, it's hard to fully understand the United States and its intelligence apparatus without understanding MacArthur, who lost China, and all of the spooks that served in the Pacific. And mind you, this is basically a different clique from all of the vampire fire wasps that served in the OSS in Europe. There's overlap, but it was different. And it's very interesting to uh, figure that out, right? I'm going to do my best with Japanese pronunciation, which is to say I'm going to put in an effort, but I will not be perfect. In Japanese, they generally say the last name before the first name, but I am going to do it the opposite. Just be cognizant that those differences exist, and I will do my best to stay consistent on that. But just know, you know, that there are technically two different ways of saying first name, last name, or last name, first name. And I'm sticking more or less with the Western way. I should also say that I am not a particular fan of Japanese culture, but neither do I view myself as the enemy of Japanese people. There's a lot of Orientalist bullshit out there about the Japanese. I'm going to try to avoid as much of that as I can, That said, at times it might sound like I am criticizing Japanese culture. I will try to avoid that because most of my issues are with the Imperial Japanese government, and I do not think that Imperial Japan was particularly worse than, say, Imperial Germany, Britain, or America. The problem is the Imperial part, not the country part, right? Like, this makes sense. And yes, I would say that a lot of Japanese culture, especially anime, is fascist or fascist adjacent. Yes, there are exceptions. No, I will not be litigating this in the course of the show. And I don't care if you like anime. That's fine. I don't care what you like. It's whatever. I'm not trying to convince you not to be a weeb, right? All these caveats aside, I don't know how often it will come up, but I will say that I might make fun of weeaboos which is to say, people who are obsessed with Japanese culture, especially anime. Like I said, I don't care if you like manga or anime or video games. I even sometimes partake myself, but it's not above reproach, and don't be a baby if I say something. 
When applicable, I will do periodic weeb checks so I don't lose my weeb listeners, however. Doesn't come up too often, though. I would like to open the episode with a quote. Unless the economic essence of imperialism is studied, it will be impossible to understand and appraise modern war and modern politics. We will get back to the source of this quote at the end of the episode. Now to get started. In the social upheavals of the Meiji era, Japan's first swing into ultranationalism came in the 1880s. It's not that there wasn't proto-forms of that before, but as the nation-state started to cohere as a concept, it made more sense. And the 1880s is when the first modern recognizable versions of it started to appear. Weeb check for the weebs out there, this would be during the Rurouni Kenshin era Japan, right? Japan was going through a lot of social upheaval at this time. And ultranationalism appeared strongest in the region of Japan known as Kyushu. Kyushu being the southern, the most southern of the four major islands. It was a relatively poor fishing and coal region. The reason for this is because Kyushu had a large community of ex-samurai. These men were disgruntled by the Meiji period's politics, to say the least, and they had participated in various rebellions against the new social order. Fukuoka, which is one of the major cities in this region, had become a breeding ground for anti-government activity. It was ground zero for the new patriotic movement growing in Japan. A man named Mitsuru Toyama founded the Genyosha, also known as the Dark Ocean Society. It was a federation of nationalist societies, and they would be the forerunner of Japan's modern patriotic groups and secret societies. Its charter was kept intentionally vague. Revere the emperor love and respect the nation, and defend the people's rights. Toyama's organization was really about tapping into the ex-samurai, and the name evokes imperial expansion across the ocean into Korea and China. Now, the Dark Ocean Society went on to perform some very interesting roles as bodyguards for government officials, as goons for local political bosses, and, curiously, as a proto-union for carpenters, plumbers, masons, and other skilled trades. It's kind of like if the AFL-CIO were all Teamsters or something, in terms of their politics. And we know that Teamsters were particularly, how do you say, reactionary. So it's sort of like that. There is some similarities here. The Dark Ocean Society functioned very similarly to the Yakuza, but they were not technically Yakuza. They had a different organizational heritage and little of the same formal rituals and trappings, and they didn't perform most of the same functions as the Yakuza. They were considered more high-class and respectable than the Yakuza, and they worked directly with the Meiji oligarchy. To quote David Kaplan's excellent book on the Yakuza, it was Toyama who foresaw and formed almost single-handedly a new patriotic social order that would be used as a paramilitary force in Japanese politics. Through a campaign of terror, blackmail, and assassination, the Dark Ocean Society's work would prove highly effective 
in exerting particular influence over members of the officer corps and the government bureaucracy, and playing an instrumental role in sweeping Japan into East Asia and ultimately into war with the United States." Unquote. The Dark Ocean Society's agents were sent to China, Korea, and Manchuria to act as spies. They would operate ultranationalist schools, they taught martial arts, they taught Japanese, and they taught espionage. It was the Dark Ocean Society that formed the Japanese intelligence network prior to World War II. And, precisely like the far-right terrorism that occurred in Germany after World War I, with the Viking Bund and the organization Consul, Toyama and his Dark Ocean Society ran a terror campaign whose aim was the promotion of a far-right social order. There's a long list of high-profile assassinations, like the particularly brutal assassination of Toshimichi Okubo. Now it's worth discussing Toshimichi Okubo and his assassination. Okubo was one of the three great nobles who were the three men who founded the modern state of Japan. Okubo had put down numerous rebellions, and he had become the de facto dictator of the country. This had provoked widespread anger, and of course it provoked his assassination in 1878. Okubo's carriage was attacked by six assassins in Tokyo. The assassins cut off the legs of the horses and then murdered the carriage driver. There's accounts of Okubo being pulled from the carriage while shouting, Rude fellows, which is kind of comical. I'm assuming it just translated as overly formal or something. But then these assassins stabbed him to death. A report says that Okubo received 16 sword wounds, half of them on his head. One witness, seeing the corpse, said that the flesh was scattered and the bones were smashed. Additionally, the skull was cracked, so I could see the brain still shaking. Toshimichi Okubo was compared to Abraham Lincoln, both in Japan and abroad, and there are a lot of parallels. To a degree, they were both polarizing and authoritarian politicians who pushed liberal reforms in their countries, often quite needed reforms. They put down rebellions, and they were both assassinated through a conspiracy by the far right in conjunction with a secret society, right? Like, Without overstating it, there are similarities. There were many other incidents, like in 1882, they attempted to assassinate the liberal politician Taisuke Itagaki by stabbing him. And in 1889, they threw a bomb into the carriage of foreign minister Shigenobu Okuma, who survived but lost a leg. Japan held its first national election in 1890, but the Meiji oligarchy quickly realized that the Diet was far more oppositional than they anticipated. The Prime Minister, Prince Masayoshi Matsukada, had ordered disloyal candidates arrested, and he brought in Toyama and his Dark Ocean Society to launch a campaign of violence against, against democracy, basically. Like, we're talking outright violence. The Dark Ocean Society worked with the police, just like the cops and the Klan, or the Nazis in the army. There were political riots all over Japan, and especially in regions where the opposition party, which was the Liberal Party, there were political riots, especially in Liberal Party strongholds. 
In these riots, 25 people died and 388 were wounded. Ballot boxes were stolen. Voter disenfranchisement was rife in Liberal Party strongholds. And the ground zero of all of this was Fukuoka. In their official statement on the elections of 1892, the Dark Ocean Society said that their purpose was to uproot all democratic and liberal organizations in the region. All of this is setting the stage for a very interesting event in world history. So, throughout history, Korea was always in the unenviable position of being near China, Japan, and to a lesser extent, Russia. And in this period, at the end of the 19th century, there was a Japanese presence in Korea. Ever since Japan beat China in the first Sino-Japanese War of 1895. But Japan wanted Korea as a colony, right? Korea pretty naturally did not want to be dominated by Japan, so they refused to speak to the Japanese delegates or allow their ports to trade with Japan. Japan, it should be remembered, was forced by gunboats to open up to the west, and now they sought to be the aggressors. It was from this reluctance to allow Japanese domination that Korea was first called the Hermit Kingdom. And these experiences would inform later displays of Korean nationalism as the Hermit Kingdom. Well, in 1895, a squad of ninjas infiltrated the Korean Imperial Palace. They raped and murdered the queen, Empress Myung-sung. Afterwards, they took her body to the Daeguk Pine Forest, they tied her body to a tree, drenched her body in oil, and then burned it. Reportedly, only a single finger bone was recovered and returned to the Korean emperor. At the time, Japanese propaganda portrayed the murder as a power struggle between factions of the royal family, and they used it as a pretext to intervene. Japanese media said that the assassination was committed by Koreans dressed as Japanese in European clothes. The international community did not buy that story. Let's analyze this for a minute. Why was the queen targeted? Because her faction at the royal court was the main clique that was oppositional to the Japanese. The emperor did not vigorously oppose the Japanese. Sometimes this event is described as a spontaneous attack from a bunch of Japanese thugs and criminals. But, the ninjas were allowed in by the Japanese-trained regiment of the Korean Royal Guard. So the operation was more sophisticated than it looked like at first glance. Who were the ninjas and why did the attack take place? The ninjas were not mere thugs and criminals. The actual attackers included a man who studied at Harvard and other top universities in Japan, a future cabinet minister future politicians, and a future diplomat. These were not thugs. These were promising young Japanese men from, you know, important families. On the ground, the attack was carried out by ninjas organized by the Dark Ocean Society. Secretly, Mitsuru Toyama had been tapped by the Minister of War, Yamagata, to start a fire or conflagration in Korea and that it would be the Japanese army's duty to go extinguish the fire. Assassinating the queen was the pretext. 
The Japanese army would then stay in Korea for the next 50 years. The key figures in the assassination all came from Kyushu. The attack was orchestrated by Inoue Kaoru, a Japanese statesman and member of the Meiji oligarchy, Prime Minister Hirobumi Ito, and Japanese Ambassador Goro Miura. After the attack, Japan covered up their role, which is to say, organizing and carrying it out. They put Goro Miura and 55 others on trial for the assassination, and they were found not guilty. To this day, I'm told that Japanese people are more or less not taught about this incident in schools, and it is not found in their textbooks. A theme we are going to see over and over and over. So basically, an ultra-nationalist secret society did a Reichstag-style event to trigger a major geopolitical event, very much in the vein of what the Italians and Germans and British and Americans have done. So Japan made Korea into a protectorate in 1905, and then there was formal direct rule by Japan over Korea by 1910. There was some propaganda and rhetoric about the Yamato leading the rest of the Asian family by the hand. In reality, the plan was to colonize Korea by the ethnic Japanese, known as the Yamato. They renamed Korea as Chosen, and it was during this period that Japan acquired Taiwan, various Pacific islands, eventually half of the Sakhalin Island, and they were biting off larger and larger chunks of China. But, like I said, the first colony was Korea. To quote Stephen Gowans, the decision to build an empire was multifactorial, driven by a network of mutually reinforcing causes that led Japanese leaders to set their sights on the Korean Peninsula, the gateway to the Asian continent, with its abundant raw materials, alluring markets, cheap labor, and potential enemies. A short distance, just 1,000 kilometers, 600 miles, from Japan, across a body of water the Japanese called the Sea of Japan, and the Koreans call the East Sea. As an emerging industrial power, Japan required access to vital raw materials necessary for its industrial development. Unlike the United States and Russia, whose expansion, whose expansive continental empires contained almost all the raw materials a modern industrial economy needed, or France and Britain, whose vast overseas empires teemed with vital natural resources, Japan lacked almost every input the country's industrialists required, with the exception of coal. With Korea under its control, Japan could offer its manufacturers a guaranteed source of raw materials, as well as cheap labor. What's more, Korea could furnish Japan with a secure supply of agricultural goods. The need for an alternative source of foodstuffs had, been, had become increasingly pressing. By the early 20th century, Japan's food production was no longer self-sufficient, owing to the tensions between its growing population and its mountainous topography, which left little room for farming." Unquote. Then, as industrial expansion pretty much requires countries to push and become export-oriented, there was growing pressure to acquire foreign territory in order to sell those goods. The market logic required them to be imperialists, quite similar to the United States and Germany. 
And like, I'm not being metaphorical or anything. This is explicitly what Cecil Rhodes, the British South African mining imperialist, told the British ruling class. Empire, as I have always said, is a bread and butter question. If you want to avoid social revolution, you must become imperialists. Unquote. Stephen Gowans gives us five drivers of capitalist imperialism. The first is the need for raw materials. Second, the need for markets. Third, the need for investment opportunities. Fourth, the need to protect supply and shipping routes. Fifth, the need for outlets for surplus and settler populations, which is to say the populations made redundant by the mechanization of farming and manufacturing. If you'll note, this is also explicitly Adolf Hitler's analysis from back in episode 9, the free episode 9, wherein Hitler pretty much explains both Cecil Rhodes' point and discusses these same five drivers. With regards to Germany's future, he explains it to German industrialists, right? Now, other countries were also angling to acquire Korea, namely the US and Russia, and of course, China still wanted to keep it in its orbit, too. This was why Japan moved on Korea so quickly, along with fears of being colonized themselves. Japan was keenly aware of what happened to China, which is to say that China got torn to pieces by various European great powers. To quote the historian of Japan, Louise Young, in an international order where the strong devour the weak, the Japanese concluded that they could either join the West as a guest at the table or be served up with China and Korea as part of the feast. And in their minds, they staked out a claim to East Asia as much as President James Monroe had warned Europe off of Latin America with the Monroe Doctrine. Japan developed a long-term plan to dominate all of Asia, and step one was Korea. The aforementioned First Sino-Japanese War, then the pretext for invasion with the assassination of the Empress, and then annexation. Now I'm not going to go into it, but in 1904-1905, Japan defeated Russia in the Russo-Japanese War. This had catastrophic effects on Russian politics. It was also one of the first major times a non-white power had defeated a great power in modern war. Japan ran Korea's police, communication system, foreign affairs, and they stationed Japanese troops in the country. They set up secret police and informant networks, and the Japanese zaibatsu, which is to say the major, <clears throat> the Japanese corporations, like functionally closer maybe to like the trusts, like in Germany, right? The Zaibatsu rushed in to exploit the situation. One Korean journalist was imprisoned after he wrote, Ah, how wretched it is. Our 20 million countrymen have become the slaves of another country. And like, it wasn't chattel slavery, but it was really not hyperbole. The Japanese disbanded the Korean army, and this triggered a major rebellion in 1908. In this rebellion, 14,000 Koreans were killed, attempting to liberate their country. From 1907 to 1910, as many as perhaps 70,000 guerrillas 
came pretty close to liberating their country in what was effectively a major war. Japan was able to kill, pacify, and or drive out into Manchuria many of the rebel groups. It was in Manchuria where Kim Il-sung would form the core of what would become the Korean People's Army, which would play such a dramatic role in the future. It was after the defeat of the rebels that the Japanese occupiers then chose to rename the country Chosen. One historian characterized this occupation as particularly intense colonial control compared to other colonial areas like India and Indochina, which were far from their metropolitan centers. For instance, the Japanese banned all Korean political organizations and newspapers and public gatherings. All education was Japanized, and Koreans were forced to speak Japanese. They had to rename themselves and do Shinto shrine worship. Not completely accurate to say, like, convert to Shintoism, right? That's not exactly the same mode, but Shintoism was, of course, foreign to Korea. And Koreans were mainly Buddhist, Confucian, or Christian. So this was an imposition. Koreans were also forced to acknowledge the Japanese emperor as divine, which is about as biblical a form of persecution as I can imagine in modern times. Japan built up the Korean economy, but it was always oriented around the needs of Japan, and Koreans were reduced to near slavery. By 1938, upwards of 60% of Korea's grain production was going straight to Japan. Quoting the journalist Anna Louise Strong, who, by the way, she's got some great books. I really like her short work, The Soviets Expected It, but... She reported, the Japanese ate seven times as much rice per capita as the Koreans, condemning the latter to eat rice huskings and cheaper grains. According to Japanese colonial law, Japanese workers were to receive two yen per day, Formosan, which is to say Taiwanese workers got one yen, and a Korean worker only received 0.66 yen per day. And as you might expect, working conditions were abysmal. Japan started conscripting Koreans to work abroad too. 20% of all Koreans were uprooted to China or Japan or elsewhere to work for the Japanese war machine. By the way, one of the greatest pro wrestlers in Japanese history was actually a Korean-Japanese man, which is to say a Korean man in Japan, and his name was Rikido-zon. A lot of people call him the father of Puroresu. He was born in Japanese-occupied North Korea. Rikidozan started as a sumo wrestler and then learned catch wrestling, and he helped popularize wrestling, pro wrestling in Japan. Rikidozan won the NWA International Heavyweight Championship, beating Luthez in 1958. He trained Antonio Inoki and Giant Baba, among many others. Rikidozan owned lots of businesses in Shibuya, and eventually he was murdered by a Yakuza. Back in Korea, several of Rikidozan's family members were actually pretty prominent in the DPRK government. Up to a third of the industrial labor force in Japan was Korean, and at least 10,000 Koreans died in the nuclear explosions at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Koreans believe that as many as 6 million Koreans were lost to slave labor. 
a holocaust's worth of lives wasted. Some estimate that as many as 200,000 Korean women were forced into sexual slavery. The basic format was the comfort stations, which were functionally just rape stations, right? The only Koreans who were able to keep any land or power were collaborators. And these collaborator families formed the nucleus of the new post-Japanese South Korean state. They were the founders of the Chaebols, which is literally wealth clan. And these Chaebols were hydra-like family-owned conglomerates that still dominate South Korea's economy today, including Samsung, Hyundai, and LG. That's right. They were all started by collaborators with the Japanese. The first governor general of Korea, General Asatake Terauchi, famously told Koreans, I will whip you with scorpions. Now, the Japanese did some very interesting things in order to run Korea. They set up the Korean Yakuza as the police force, and they made torture its policy, the logic being that no Oriental can be expected to tell the truth except under torture. The Korean police were then monitored by Japan's Gestapo, the Kempeitai. The Kempeitai wore civilian clothes, Japan had a whole army's worth of spies, informants, criminals, and terrorists all throughout Asia. Over 35,000 official agents and many, many, many more assets and informants. And that doesn't entirely include the Dark Ocean Society's members and assets. The Japanese stole everything they could find of value in Korea. And the top of the list was Korea's Celadon porcelain, which by some connoisseurs' reckoning was more exquisite than China's Tang porcelain. Going back in time in the 16th century, Japan had kidnapped Korean Celadon masters. Subsequently, high-quality porcelain had been produced in Kyushu. Curious that Kyushu should come up again, right? Under Terauchi's orders, the governor of Korea, laws were passed to preserve historic sites. I'm doing preserve in air quotes because that meant robbing upwards of 2,000 tombs of their porcelain, Buddhas, jewelry, artwork, and treasure. Much like the British did, right? Many of Korea's priceless artifacts remain in private collections to this day. Very few were ever returned to Korea. The Japanese stole ancient literary and historical Korean texts. Tens of thousands were shipped to Japan, and then they burned upwards of 200,000, all as part of a systematic program to erase Korean culture. They also dynamited many historical and cultural sites. Japan's aim, said Korean historian Yi Quebec, was to eradicate consciousness of Korean national identity, roots and all and thus to obliterate the very existence of the Korean people from the face of the earth. Sterling and Peggy Seagrave wrote, The great mass of Korean cultural treasure remains in Japan to this day, in private collections, museums, and the vaults of the imperial family. Much of this patrimony is beyond price. Now, let's talk about resistance. Kim Il-sung wrote, Ten years after the annexation, Korea had become a gigantic dungeon, no better than those of the Middle Ages. The Japanese colonists used naked military power to suppress the Korean people's aspiration to become free again. The Japanese took away our freedom of press, 
freedom to hold meetings, freedom to form organizations, and freedom to march. They took away our human rights and properties. The Korean people formed secret organizations, independence fights, mass enlightenment activities, and had built up considerable potential energy against the decade of plunder and exploitation by the Japanese. Teddy Roosevelt and his Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, formally recognized Japan's claims to Korea. Then, after that, many Koreans somehow still fell for U.S. President Wilson's rhetoric about each nation's right of self-determination. And they thought that they would get a chance to petition for their own independence. The U.S. recognizing Japan's claims to Korea and then the Versailles Treaty were both huge letdowns for Koreans. In Korea, they held large, massive, peaceful protests asserting their legal and human rights, and the Japanese brutally attacked and repressed them. Kim Il-sung compared Japan and the United States to armed robbers. He said, An armed robber in your house will not spare your life, just because you plead for your life. Other armed robbers standing outside will not rush inside to help you no matter how loud you scream. And if you want to live, you must fight off the armed robber yourself. Armed robbers must be fought with arms." Unquote. Kim Il-sung pointed out rightfully that the U.S. worked with Japan to sell Korea into colonial slavery in exchange for Washington's own imperial ambitions in Asia. This selling out played no small role in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's official policy of self-reliance, or Juche, that it, quote, is a tragic lesson that Korea should not count on other nations for independence because they do not care, unquote. Instead, Koreans would have to emancipate themselves, according to Kim Il-sung's theory. That theory held that any group that is oppressed must count on no one but themselves to bring about their liberation. That's not to say that they were against receiving help, but not to count on it. Other people would not free Koreans, Koreans would have to free themselves. For what it's worth, very similar debates were playing out in Vietnam, with Ho Chi Minh petitioning the United States for independence, only to be rejected. Now, to get close to wrapping up, I mentioned how the people of Korea, Vietnam, and many other countries were hoodwinked by the United States' declarations in favor of national self-determination. And when they were let down, they understandably cast about for different allies in their struggles for liberation. Ho Chi Minh, who we mentioned way back in free episode 3, had actually appealed to President Wilson directly about Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh, living abroad in France, had become a socialist, but he had noticed that many French socialists were still chauvinists who did not take seriously Vietnam's struggle for independence. Ho Chi Minh tried to figure out which faction of socialism would support Vietnam's claims for independence. In Ho's words, what I wanted to know was which of the branches of socialism sided with the peoples of colonial countries. Ho Chi Minh had gotten a hold of Lenin's essay, The Revolutionary Proletariat and the Right of Nations to Self-Determination. Because Lenin had expanded the definition of socialist revolution to include a whole series of battles around all problems of economic and democratic reforms, 
including equal rights for women, and importantly from the perspective of people trying to free themselves from colonial subjugation, self-determination. Socialism would remain an idle phrase, Lenin said, if it were not linked up with a revolutionary approach to all the questions of democracy, including the national question. Ho Chi Minh found that it was Lenin's Bolshevik program that not only recognized colonial nations' right to liberation, but also provided a concrete program by which to achieve it. He wrote, upon finding this out, What emotion, enthusiasm, clear-sightedness and confidence it instilled in me, he exclaimed. I was overjoyed to tears, though sitting alone in my room I shouted aloud as if addressing large crowds, Dear compatriots, this is what we need. This is the path to our liberation. Kim Il-sung's experiences were similar, though perhaps not as dramatic. But that's for another day, maybe. Now then, let us finish by revisiting the quote at the beginning of the episode. Unless the economic essence of imperialism is studied, it will be impossible to understand and appraise modern war and modern politics. Now, if you haven't guessed by now, that quote comes from Lenin, and I agree with the sentiment. At least as a Westerner, you will not understand literally anything about South Korea, or Japan, or World War II, or the Korean War, if you don't understand the nature of Japanese imperialism, itself deeply informed by European imperialism but also deeply informed by the historical forces propelling Japan to basically become imperialist, right? Like, we saw how Japanese heavy industry, coal mostly, and manufacturing gave rise to the same types of far-right paramilitary forces which went right around and suppressed worker unrest. These forces were then weaponized to attack liberal and democratic politics, it's the foot soldiers coming from the D-Classe ex-Samurai, which is fundamentally not all that different from, say, the Nazis drawing upon the D-Classe petite bourgeoisie for their actual, like, brown shirts, right? These forces, the Dark Ocean Society, were used for the dirty work that the Japanese nation needed to carry out. In this case, the brutal assassination of Empress Myung-sung, and then also many of the following crimes required by the occupation of Korea. We saw how industrial expansion and the laws of capitalism pretty much required Japan to become imperialist, and the dog-eat-dog -dog world carved up by European imperialism informed Japan's response to these challenges, which is to say by pretty much committing fully to being an imperialist power. Then we saw that the Occupation of Korea required a whole host of brutal, unforgivable crimes against Koreans, ranging from theft and erasure of their culture, language, religion, money, and treasure, to the slave-like working conditions, the loss of their very names, the food they grew, and even their very bodily and sexual autonomy. We saw how the United States sold Korea out, just like how they sold out Vietnam, they failed to live up to their own talk of national self-determination and international dignity and all that horseshit about human rights. In both cases, Korea and Vietnam found material support from the Soviet Union. And this would cause spectacular blowback against the United States 
in the decades to come. Next week, we will look at another Japanese secret society and another region subject to Japanese imperial aggression. And we will see how it was similar yet different to Korea. Now today I used Stephen Gowan's book, Patriots, Traitors, and Empire, The Story of Korea's Struggle for Freedom. I also used the book Gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. I also used the book by David Kaplan and Alec Dubrow entitled Yakuza, Japan's Criminal Underworld, as well as an article from the Chosun Ilbo called The Sobering Truth About Empress Myung-sung's Killing by Kim Tae-ik. Thank you for listening, dear listener. If you like what I do, check me out on Patreon where I do additional shows, generally one-off episodes for interesting topics, whereas of course the free side, it's more of an ongoing thing, right? Now, I need to be on my way to the Amur River. See you next episode, and God bless. (laughs) 